Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. Um, If you are enjoying this podcast, please go ahead and give us uh, some feedback. Um, Please like the podcast and feel free to send us your questions as well. Yes, and uh, we also have our book out that came out uh, back in uh, November of last year. And uh, if you enjoy the podcast uh, and would like to have a little bit more in-depth insight on a lot of the topics that we talk about, Uh, you can pick it up on Amazon.com. Please do so. Okay, so today we're going to discuss the fascinating uh, effects that occur when we uh, begin to solve the same problem using the same method repeatedly. And uh, it's known as the set effect. We can start to become sort of set in our ways. And uh, this was originally explored uh, during the days of Gestalt psychology over in Germany, uh, in the uh, early to mid-20th century, Abraham Luchens is one of the uh, investigators most uh, associated with this effect. Um, he was operating for a number of decades in the United States at the University at Albany. Um, and what he would do is essentially give people these uh, thought problems. Uh, one of them involved uh, transferring water from different uh, vessels uh, in, a, in a particular way, and you could achieve the result using a certain sequence repeatedly, uh, I mean, people would begin to pick up on this sort of formula, and then they would begin to apply it as a heuristic or a guideline, um, and they would come to associate all of those water problems with that one solution. Then he would test them with these tricky problems that would uh, basically be able to be solved in the same manner Yet, there was a more straightforward solution. And the question is, would people become so locked in that they would miss that simpler solution? That's generally what happened. And so uh, this, this can be applied in a whole variety of areas in life. Um, you can think about when you're learning uh, different types of mathematics, like division or, or algebra, it's tempting to uh, start to over-apply a certain strategy um, and then you'll begin to miss problems because you're, you're in a sense, overly categorizing and missing um, some of the important uh, differences that, that might be relevant. Yes, and you, know, you can see this in the world of investing as well, where we have a particular methodology that we've adopted and we become very used to using that methodology, but things change. And sometimes there are more efficient approaches that we can apply So it's important to have an awareness uh, that whatever process that we have, there might be a better way or there might be changes that occur within the environment that justify us shifting or adopting our process to these new changes. It really comes down to inductive reasoning. So what inductive reasoning is about is uh, gathering in a whole variety of experiences out in the world And eventually you start to form some type of rule within your mind um, and then you start to categorize and apply that rule to get through your day and be efficient. In other words, you become behaviorally biased. What we've talked about a number of times on this podcast, those biases will lead us to then overlook um, other possibilities. And that's the trade-off of inductive reasoning. 
Um, philosophers of the mind or logic have long thought of inductive reasoning as faulty because just because something applies a lot of the time does not mean it applies all of the time. Um, another daily life example I can think of is when I had to do coding. Um, I was really not trained uh, in any particular coding language, and I would work um, in MATLAB, and I would always have to really just try and, by inductive inference, get the job done. So if, if something had worked in a certain way previously, I would be kind of helplessly locked into applying that same uh, method called brute force coding, which is not elegant, and uh, there would certainly be more efficient, more effective ways, more time-sensitive ways to achieve those things. But um, I never reached that level of expertise. And that's another thing that really affects our inductive reasoning. When we become an expert at something, we've developed deep category knowledge, often by principle, deliberate practice in which we can uh, apply our solutions to a whole variety of problems, get feedback, correct the feedback, uh, do it again. And you start to build in flexible um, routines where you can start to understand something. This applies uh, in, in investing. It applies in another competitive domain, chess. So I've had the good fortune to do some chess-related research with experts um, at the University of Texas at Dallas, which has a world-class university chess program. And one of my colleagues uh, in Europe, Miram Balacek, had investigated that set effect in experts. And what Miram did was uh, basically present um, a variety of chess boards in which one could apply a certain um, well-established strategy. And in a, in a sense, you would start to use that strategy over and over and over again. And then he would present game situations where there was actually a some simpler, more effective ways that you could defend against that, that kind of attack. And the question is, would experts uh, become locked into that set effect, or would they be more creative and notice the um, other alternatives? The reality of it is the expertise is what made the difference. So if you were a reasonably good expert, you would get locked in. Uh, in some sense, the prior experience would limit your creativity, but if you were a true expert at the grandmaster level and had put in you know, the, the necessary number of hours of deliberate practice, you retained that uh, flexibility, which I thought was fascinating. So um, if, if you're at that high level, um, you would notice still that there are better ways to solve uh, any given problem. I think that's true uh, with a lot of uh, investors as well, that uh, those that have uh, been around for a long period of time know that things change and that often uh, whatever process or methodology you, you used in the past needs to evolve. We actually saw that with Warren Buffett. Uh, Warren Buffett early on in his career was very focused on Benjamin Graham's net nets and uh, that was effective when he had a smaller amount of capital and then over time uh, he started to invest more in companies that uh, were higher quality and uh, more dynamic, uh, more based off of the future growth of a franchise uh, and that, and that had a durable competitive advantage, as opposed to those that were just simply trading below networking capital. 
because he was moving more capital at the time. The opportunities for net nets have become a lot less frequent for him to be able to take advantage of. And simply the, the universe of investing uh, was changing. Uh, so he had to adopt an alternative strategy uh, that was different than the more formulaic approach that his old mentor, Benjamin Graham, had advocated. To take it back to the brain, this is what's known as exploring versus exploiting. And you can think about um, our mammal ancestors uh, basically trying to make their living by locating food and avoiding danger. Um, you would have to do two things there. One, you'd have to explore and discover um, where the food would be and what predicted it. And then uh, once you'd figured that out, continue to exploit that. Use the same methods in order to, to attain the rewards until the circumstances change. Either the uh, food cache has been uh, used up or some new predator has moved onto the landscape, making that inaccessible. Then you must critically switch. And this is what really gives us um, our mental flexibility is that knowledge of now the circumstances are different, just as Buffett had noticed, and make some kind of uh, adjustment in our behavior uh, in order to, um, to do this. And so that's one of the keys to intelligent thinking is that uh, sense of when to shift behavior um, and, and to stop overly applying it. Um, I link this back to the frontal lobes once again, uh, one of my favorite brain areas. People who have damage to the frontal lobes classically can't shift. So whenever you give them some formula to follow, they get really locked in on it. It's called perseverative behavior. They'll just persist in doing the same thing over and over again. And so you need a really good, um, flexible network router. And I think that really is your frontal lobes. That allows you to uh, notice when there's evidence to the contrary and uh, try something different. Yeah, I think that that is uh, definitely analogous to uh, how we have to be as investors to some degree. You want to have discipline with respect to whatever process that you're applying, but you have to have the awareness to know that things can change and uh, there may be better methodologies for the current environment that you're in. So in chapter eight of the book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, we advocate for doing post-mortem analyses. And I think that's one of the areas you can learn from here. What, whatever your outcomes were, positive or negative, um, try to think of each example as a learning instance where you can now kind of deconstruct what, what led to certain things occurring. You know, do deep analysis um, and you'll start to build up a bigger repertoire of things, and those shades of gray uh, will start to become more apparent to you where you're not over-categorizing, um, leaving yourself at risk to doing the same thing repeatedly and making a, a similar mistake over and over again. It takes uh, a little bit of uh, modesty here also to keep an open mind that just because things are going well now, you don't want to become overconfident um, and uh, over-apply your expertise to inappropriate examples. And part of this is sticking to your circle of competence, which is another tactic that we advocate for. Um, if you're going to invest in a particular area, really doing some deep work on it in advance will help you to make uh, better decisions and not get trapped by these side effects. Yes, you're, as a great investor, you're always going to need to be a lifetime learner and uh, continuously questioning 
your process uh, and looking for ways in which you can improve. And of course, the, the postmortem is an excellent tool to be able to enable that. Okay, so in this episode, we've talked about set effects dating back to Abraham Luchin's early work on problem solving. What happens is when we see the same thing over and over again, we start to over-apply our knowledge. Uh, we fall into a formula or a bias, and then we need to ex- exert some remedies. Um, as is often the case, good old hard work and deep analysis will help you out of that trap. Well, that's great. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. All right. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.